This episode of Rinky Radio is proudly brought to you by Accutron and the Spaceview 2020 60th Anniversary Limited Edition. With 60 pieces being made in 18 karat gold, this is a huge anniversary for a game-changing watch. So stay tuned later in the show for more on the brand's iconic Spaceview timepiece or visit AccutronWatch.com. Hi, it's me, James Stacy, and when I say the Patek Philippe 5711, I'm going to assume most of you have some sort of a reaction. This Nautilus has become nothing short of a touchpoint in the rapid rise in demand for exclusive stainless steel sports watches from a group of high-end luxury manufacturers. Long a difficult watch to buy, the 5711 all but defines the situation today as weightless and gray market dealers scramble to keep up with, and in some cases cash in on, demand for a product that Patek recently decided to discontinue. Despite not wanting to have the 5711 define all that is Patek, the final reference was recently announced via a limited 170-unit run made for Tiffany & Co., and I'm sure most of you have been following the story, as the watch was announced and then, just days later, the only publicly available example went for auction at Phillips and sold for a proper boatload of cash in support of charity. As with any big and divisive story, my goal here is to develop some sense of context, that should help to inform the widest possible perspective for those who wish to truly be in the know. As I am neither a Tiffany VIP nor really little more than a hopeful future Patek owner, I've asked Ben Clymer to join me, along with Logan and John, both of whom who have covered this expanding story, to take a closer look at this seemingly important watch and what it means to Patek, to watch media, and watch collecting, you know, as a whole. All right, Ben, Logan, John, thanks so much for coming back on the show. I think this is going to be a fun one. How's everyone doing? Doing okay. Exciting times here in New York City. Doing well, man. Thanks. Yeah, happy to be here. Happy to be here. All right, Ben. I'm I'm curious to know to establish some context about the 5711, about the Nautilus. Uh, obviously, it's become this poster child for like a really hot, really hard to get watch, the unobtainium, etc. But that's not necessarily how it's always been surrounding this watch. What? How has the last say decade or whatever changed the context of this watch? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the Nautilus has been in this in the Patek collection since what, 1976? And I think for the majority of those years, I mean, after its introduction, when it was, you know, kind of the follow-up to the Royal Oak, it really every way. I mean, as, if you go back to our talking watches with Jean-Claude Bieber, he says, you know, when Patek did that, it didn't feel very nice because it was really, you know, the same watch by the same designer using the same movement just a few years later. Um, it, it was really just kind of a watch that was there. And like in, in my kind of like formative years as a collector and, and somebody who really followed the market, the 5711, you know, which was introduced in the mid 2000s, was really an homage to the watch that really mattered to us geeks, which was the, you know, the original watch, the, the you know, the, the original, the 3700. And I think for so many years, it was really just kind of like this weird off, kind of like off kilter, 1970s kind of throwback thing in the same way that the Royal Oak was. And th- those watches kind of come up and they, they, they live and breathe together. I should say they live and die together. Um, and, you know, I think back to, you know, for the longest time when like that watch was really, really available and so much so that like discounts were prevalent. And, and, and as I've said many times, like when I bought my 5711R, you know, in say like 2014, 15, like it was sitting in the case. And by the way, wow. mine is Tiffany sign. I bought this from the Tiffany dealer in New York. I have since been offered seven or eight times what I paid for that watch <laughs> at retail recently. And I, I said, no, for the record. 
And I think it's just like, it's really important to remember. And the same is true for the Royal Oak, as we've talked about before, like this was not a big deal. And it's, you know, it is weird to see them going for, for what they are now. I'm not going to say it's right or wrong, but like this, this was not the watch that mattered. I mean, if you think back to like, say, I'm going to say 2012, 13, which is when kind of like I started to come around really in terms of understanding the market, like the 5970, that was the watch you wanted. Like the 5711 was like, sure, I'll take that. It was literally like the least expensive watch you could buy with the exception of the Calatravas. And nobody cared. Like if you had a 5970, like that's that's how you knew you were the man, you know? And those used to be selling above retail, you know, and those were expensive watches. Those are perpetual calendar chronographs. And the 5711 was just kind of this weird thing off to the side that really appealed to, frankly, people like me, like William Messina, you know, to Paul Boutros, like kind of the geeks that were that really kind of paid attention to the history of, of the tech belief. And it was weird. And, to, you know, to see where it is now, I mean, it's just shocking, truly. Right. So then I guess if you're saying with your R is a 14 or 15 purchase, and since then we've seen this heat, I don't think we, you can you can tie it to, to one thing that happened in the market, but it's riding the same wave as what's happened to the Royal Oak and what's happened to kind of a lot of steel integrated sports watches. At this point, it's not so much a bubble as much as it's more of just an overriding trend in taste. Where, where do you think it necessarily came from? Was it just people, it, it was on the radar long enough for people to get used to it and then it became kind of accepted and special? Yeah, I mean, I think that this idea of like steel watches, which was so like, I mean, in, in the early days of, of Budinki and the early days of kind of like the watch internet, like steel watches to the geeks like me and, and William, and I keep on going back to the two of us because we spent years discussing this, was like, that was kind of like this this hyper nerdy thing where like, as, as we all know, like Patek, Vacheron, AP, the great brands, like they did 90% of their watches, if not more, in precious metals. And like, you know, us being the cool kids, like, oh, we should do, like, we want a Patek in steel. We want a Vacheron in steel. You know, we want all this stuff in steel because it's more wearable and it's more chill and like, you know, we're cool or whatever. And I think that really you know, we saw the market respond to that when the Steel 1518 sold for whatever it sold for, I forget, like $11 million or something like that. And I think that was the archetype of, okay, like that is peak steelness, right? Because you can buy a 1518 yellow for say half a million dollars and it sold for 11 million. We won't even talk about the pink wash that sold this past weekend. And I think that's when people started to realize like steel is a thing. And then, you know, that with the uptick in, uh, in Richard Meal in these like casual watches. And of course, Daytona hype and all the steel Rolex stuff, like people just want, steel casual watches now on bracelets i mean bracelet watches are everything at this point it, it just it's just so many years of as i've said before kind of homogenization of taste thanks to our, our pals at instagram we're like it just becomes like the ultimate flex and like again like this movement has been around forever the case design has been around forever it is a lovely watch i love my nautilus i've loved every single one i've ever owned but is it worth this type of hype it, it's not and i don't think the, the folks at patek would say otherwise either Right. Now, now we see at kind of, in some ways, the peak of this hype, we're seeing Patek withdraw. You know, they, they put out the green uh, version earlier this year. And, uh, and obviously, to considerable fanfare, there was talk at the time that, oh, maybe this is the last one. Stern had kind of uh, hinted that it wouldn't be. And then, of course, now we've seen what they're saying is, at least directly from Thierry Stern, absolutely the last 5711, which are this 170-unit Tiffany piece, and I'm, I'm interested in thinking like, so if this is the last one, will it take years to decide where it lands against all the others they've made since 76 in terms of its actual collector appeal outside of the hype, if the hype ever kind of chills out? Yeah, I mean, I, I think at, at the end of the day, I think to me, the ultimate 5711, which as I've talked about on this show or elsewhere, is the 5711P Tiffany sign non-anniversary. 
Like that's the that's that's one of my greatest watch buying regrets is not going through with that order. You know, th there are so few of those. Then I think 5711P, you know, even the 40th anniversary, although the, the, the logo on the dial is, is questionable. Mm. And I, I think in terms of the standard 5711s, like this is this is a pretty special one. And you know, our friend Jasm, who was on Talking Watches, the Decaholic, has been posting these questions on Instagram. Excuse me, do you think there are more normal 5711 Tiffany signed watches than there are these blue dials? There's 170 of these blue. I think there probably are, yeah. And I think you know the, the hype around this like kind of crazy candy-colored blue that is certainly Tiffany blue adds something really special. And then the fact that this watch is available to one retailer is the crazy thing. And I mean, to be clear, Patek has done this before. Like Wempy's had their own special editions. Bayer's had their own special editions. I'm sure the Hourglass has people like that. It's not that crazy to have a retail-specific watch. It's just crazy that it's a Nautilus at the peak of the attractiveness of the Nautilus. Like had Patek given Tiffany a 5205 or a, even a 5270, it would be a neat thing. And people people like me would want it. As a guy who's only bought modern Pateks from Tiffany and, and as a New Yorker, I would certainly want that, whatever. It's like the, the, the John Mayer watch that, that they did many years ago, the annual calendar. Like that was a hot watch, but it wasn't crazy. Uh, but I think the fact that they chose to lean into the hype of the Nautilus right now in the year that LVMH acquired Tiffany, for sure, and even Terry says this is kind of a gift to the Arno family for, for, for doing this, is is really remarkable. And I and I do think it's going to be one of the most sought-after Nautilus versions. There, there is. I think that the 5711P non-anniversary non watch, I think, is kind of like the, the inside baseball, like kind of nerdy, kind of holy grail. And that's the one that I would want, probably, if I could have any modern iteration of 5711. But yeah, I think this is going to be immensely desirable for, for a long, long time to come. Hey, the, the 5711P that you're referring to is the one uh, that was only available at the Geneva Salon, or is that, or am I thinking of a different watch? So, yeah, I, a lot of people thought that, but that, that was not actually true. So they were they were available elsewhere. Uh, and I, in fact, had the opportunity, at least I'm told, to, to, to purchase one many years ago. I mean, like 10 plus, like eight, nine, 10 plus years ago. Didn't have the money, didn't really even think about it. You know, it was $100,000 for, for a Nautilus, which at the time was just crazy. Uh, and so I said, okay, cool. Like, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, and, you know, I, I think Tiffany, and if you go onto, I think, Blue Box, Patek, or some, you know, one of those Tiffany kind of themed Instagram accounts, uh, you can see one or two out there. So it, it was available from other retailers, not just Tiffany, not just the Geneva Salon, but a, an exceedingly rare modern iteration of, of a Patek for sure. So who knows how many were made, but it's extremely rare. Um, and that is, you know, again, if, if I could have any watch from new, that, that would be the one. But I do think this with the baby blue dial is, is really, really going to be something that people want. The world over because again there's so many people out there including some of the folks that that were bidding on the watch at phillips over the weekend that you know you could be one of protect's biggest clients in dubai in hong kong in singapore in london geneva whatever if you are not buying from tiffany you really don't have access to this watch like you need to be a tiffany client to have access to this watch and that is pretty remarkable i mean my first thought when i saw this watch was like this is the most instantly recognizable nautilus i've ever seen you know i thought you know i thought the green kind of stood out but um, this kind of robin eggshell blue, uh, there's no other, I mean, it's unmistakable. Talk about like being able to identify a watch from across the room, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, and availability is going to be an interesting thing. You know, in his, uh, in an interview with, uh, I believe, with CNBC, he said, I had to warn Tiffany and say, listen, this is a fantastic gift. Like Ben said, they gifted these watches to, um, to Tiffany kind of as a celebration of the LVMH purchase. And he said, but it's also a poisonous one because you only have 170 pieces, you don't have to, and the choice to, you know, sell it to the final client will be yours. There'll be 170 people who will be really happy and the rest will be unhappy. So, you know, he said, I hope they sell it to the right people. You know, Stern has an, an interesting way of being transparent about 
some of these these strings that attach various products to various other elements within the watch industry. And I thought that this was um, not a surprising amount of transparency, but just a very straightforward way of putting it. Like, I understand what we've done here. This is how many we've made. We're not going to make more. This is the last 5711, which will always be something, you know, in the car world, the last of something, whether it's the last of a Ferrari with a stick or it's the last one with carburetors or whatever. Like these, these are things that people attach to, collectors, uh, those in the know. So I think that's, I don't think that's worth underselling in any way. The fact that it is the going to be the last before they move on to whatever comes next. And uh, it, it's a fascinating thing. And, and I think we saw the, the, the kind of the first stage of the payoff and, and in many ways in support of Ben of what you're saying with what went down at the Phillips auction. And uh, uh, Logan, you were there. Uh, what, what was it like? Uh, it was the first lot, uh, a little after 10 o'clock, they started going. What was that like? I, you know, I've been to one Phillips one before and certainly not one with this kind of uh, heat behind it. Yeah, I was in the room with a couple other Hodinkee um, team members. Uh, Danny was there with me, uh, Rich on our kind of vintage and pre-owned team, and Sean, who was also on the, the vintage team. And it, it was my, I mean, I've been to a number of different auctions. I, I was in um, Geneva last month for the Phillips Christie's and only watch sales. Uh, I've been to Phillips and Christie sales in New York before and the vibe in the room, it, it didn't feel extra special. If I, if I really have to be honest, like maybe it was because it started first, you know, people hadn't quite woken up yet, but it, it, it felt like it took a minute for everyone to really get into the fact that this watch is okay. It's, it started at 20 K and then it went up to, you know, in, in half a million increments up to $4 million. And it, it, it took a moment for that to register. I feel like they almost did the, like if they had waited, um, if it had been lot 15 or lot, you know, 17 or something like that, there would have been more kind of energy in the room, but it, it really felt like almost procedural to, to a certain extent. Um, and I don't mean that in any negative so, sort of way. It was just kind of in a, a clear contrast to the vibe in Geneva where there was so much kind of energy and good energy. Um, it almost felt like with, uh, you know, T1 or 1T, um, I forget uh, what it was, but it, it was almost like they wanted to, to get it over with before they could get into the, the meat of the, the sale. And uh, I, don't, I don't think that's necessarily true. You know, I think everyone was incredibly excited about the watch and, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not going to bash the watch like so many other people have over the past uh, week. Uh, Cause I think there's a number of really interesting elements to it, but I, yeah, I feel like they could have made it the heart of the sale instead of kind of the, the opening uh, appetizer. And they probably couldn't do that because uh, um, I mean, like RL said during the auction, if you're watching uh, the stream online, he, uh, he said that they had already printed the, or they had already printed the catalog before they even knew that they could include um, the slot. So, um, you know, that's, that must've been in the past two months that it, it, it just kind of came up and they were like, all right, well, where are we going to put it? We don't want to put it at the very end. So let's put it at the beginning. Well, he, uh, sorry to interrupt. I mean, he said publicly that, that it, it happened 20 days. It happened 20 days. Before wow. the sale. That's, that's remarkable. And I, um, I was talking with some of the specialists and, you know, some of them didn't know it was happening until the day it was announced to all of us. Yeah. You know, some, uh, some, some knew earlier, but some of the other ones, some of the other specialists didn't know until everyone else knew that Phillips was going to be auctioning that off. So. Yeah, I, I think the other thing that, that's worth mentioning is, you know, Logan and I were, were chatting over text during the, the sale and, you know, we were texting, I don't know, in, in the afternoon or something like that on Saturday. And I said, what's the room like? And he sent me a video and the room was like kind of empty. And I think if, if you do want, you know, if you want to get the hype going, make it the first lot because I mean, as somebody who regularly bids at auction, 
it's a, excuse me, it's a pain in the ass to know when your lot's going to come up. You have to have your phone and you're, you know, like, you know, you might be out to lunch or at the dinner or whatever. And if it's the first lot, the sale begins at 10, it's going to go off at 10.05. Like we know that, you know, and I think that that was definitely smart on, on their part. So that the maximum hype would be uh, achievable. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I just, I, I feel like I, maybe I uh, built myself up too much coming from Geneva and, and only watch where it was just kind of bang, 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 bang all day to, to being in the room on Saturday and Sunday. It, it was almost uh, very kind of low key to a certain extent. And, and that, that carried through with even the Tiffany piece, I thought. Like it, it never felt like this was actually what everyone was making a big deal about online. Yeah, and the context for for this sale would be, you know, the green 5711, which went at Anticorum, went for about $470,000, you know, this past July, that, and that's after the, the fees. And of course, Logan, I asked you on, I think, Thursday afternoon or maybe Thursday evening, what you thought this was going to go for. Once I knew you were going to be there, I was like, well, what's your prediction? You said, you know, between five and six. Which ended up being dead on. I mean, after um, after the fees and such, they earned six million five hundred and three thousand five hundred dollars, which is one hundred percent to charity to the Nature Conservancy. I don't I don't know how to contextualize that. I mean, anyone who knows me well knows I'm not a Patek Philippe collector to begin with, um, and and I have a, a, a only functional knowledge of uh, of watch auction stuff. I'm not a bidder, uh, but I do think that. There's a piece of that that's hype. There's a piece of it is, you know, obviously it's going to to a charity. And then then there's a side where this is, in some way, this would be your only swing at getting one with your name on the warranty card, right, Ben? Like, there's got to be some added value to that. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think we saw some some folks bidding in the room that, you know, are not American clients. Um, and if you're not a client of Tiffany, uh, you know, the odds of getting it would be slim to none. I think what, what was kind of most surprising is that, not that the watch sold online, which it did. It went to an online bidder, which I love to see, obviously. You know, go internet. I believe in you. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, the fact that it went to a New Yorker is, is really fascinating. The person bidding was in New York, which means conceivably they could walk into Tiffany and say, you know what, guys? I'm going to spend $2 million on diamonds for myself, for my wife, for my mom, sister, daughter, whatever. Can I get that watch now? And, like, they might say yes. You know what I mean? Like, somebody walks in and spends that kind of money. Uh, they, they would probably pay attention and say, okay, you could probably have the watch. Um, but the fact that this bid came from New York is surprising. I would have expected it coming from the Middle East or Asia or somewhere where Tiffany doesn't really have a, you know, a presence at all. Um, so that is, that's confounding to me for sure, uh, that it came from New York, because again, unless they were looking for the charitable write-off, which mm-hmm. is a real thing, uh, you know, they probably could have spent enough money on something else to been allocated to be allocated the watch at the price of whatever it is, fifty two thousand dollars or something. I wonder what the you know what this sale means for the company Tiffany, you know, which is you know as we've all been talking about, it's a it's a New York based uh, jeweler. It with um, you know it's big uh, flagship stores that sell Patek in New York and L A and San Francisco. Um, you know, standing on like you know the world stage of of watches uh, in this way. I mean, granted, the, the Tiffany stamp has been a big and impressive thing for years and years, going back a long time. But to, uh, you know, make this kind of news with, you know, the, the final version of the, um, you know, the hottest stainless steel watch that there is in the world. Is Tiffany looking like a like a company that could eventually go head to head with a, a brand like Cartier, for example? I think so. You know, which is much more which is much more international. I, I think it is. And I think, you know, obviously the, the infusion of, of capital from LVMH and the acquisition of LVMH, like 
Tiffany is more relevant than ever before. I mean, we saw the Jay-Z and Beyonce campaign, which I thought was really well done. You know, if you follow anybody on Instagram, you see Hailey Bieber wearing it all the time. You know, like people that are, you know, like culturally relevant today are now wearing Tiffany where even a year ago, two years ago, they, they really weren't. So this is to me kind of like, you know, I won't call it the exclamation point because I think there probably will be many more examples of this, but this is just further um, suggestion or for, for the proof that Tiffany is kind of a global powerhouse. And you know, what would a 5711 sell for if it said Cartier on the dial? Who knows? We're never going to find out. I can promise you that. Unless there is one out there, but it wouldn't be a 5711. You know, I, I think it really says a lot. I think, you know, LVMH is a master at what they do, and they are putting Tiffany front and center. And I, I, I do think with time, it's going to really compete with Cartier, for, for sure. Just speaking of cultural relevance, uh, I was talking with some of the Philips specialists, and they said that the 5711 Tiffany had over 350 registered online bidders prior to the sale itself, which is more than they've ever seen on a single lot, um, which I think is, you know, speaks to the tremendous amount of interest that the watch generated, the the buzz it had, you know, I mean, is it, is it all hype? But maybe, but, you know, there, there was a lot of interest and demand out there that the Phillips, you know, the the kind of kingmakers of the watch auction world the past five years had never seen that amount, not with the, the Paul Newman Daytona. I mean, it's a, it's a very 2021 thing, I think, to have a uh, contemporary 5711, brand new, fresh to market uh, collaboration, Tiffany on the dial, Tiffany blue color, and, and have that be the most uh, interest they've ever registered for a single watch lot. I find that crazy. It's time for our ad break, and we're thrilled to once again have Accutron supporting another episode of Houdinki Radio. As we mentioned earlier this fall, Accutron is celebrating a special anniversary this year. 2021 marks the 61st anniversary of Accutron's introduction, and in honor of their 60th birthday, the brand has announced the Spaceview 2020 60th Anniversary Limited Edition. More than half a century on from the original, the Spaceview 2020 takes its name from the open-dial Accutron that inspired a generation of watch lovers to think differently about what a fine timepiece could be. This special edition is limited to just 60 examples, cased exclusively in 18-karat yellow gold. The Spaceview 2020 60th Anniversary Limited Edition recreates both the technical and the aesthetic, as though Accutron reached all the way back to 1960. Tucked inside that precious case, we find a detailed view of Accutron's innovative electrostatic movement, with a smooth, sweeping orange seconds hand set against vibrant green accents that recall the look and feel of the original Accutron space view. American watchmaking tradition and cutting-edge technology all wrapped up in a very limited creation, the Spaceview 2020 60th Anniversary Limited Edition marks a special chapter in Accutron's history. You can learn more in the show notes or by visiting AccutronWatch.com. With a big thanks to Accutron for their continued support, let's get back to the show. I also think you have to give them some credit for the strategy, the speed. Like, I understand that from what Ben said that they had 20 days, but even just to have the watch come out on uh, the Monday or the Tuesday and then run the auction on the Saturday, it, it allowed it like this compression, which I think added a lot of heat to the overall, uh, how quickly people wanted to talk about it, how quickly people wanted to start speculating, myself, other people, the interest level, uh, all those things. And I think, you know, if it had been like, it came out, we're going to have one in eight weeks, there, there'd be a, there, there'd be that climb and then decline in attention. And then it would, they would have to return to this. Yeah. Whereas on this arc, they, it, it was, it was literally like hitting the peak and then they sold it, which I just think is a, a really strong strategy. 
It, it, it is. And it, it, it's amazing. And I think it's, it's been kind of funny to see Alexander Arnaud, who, you know, is, is you know, I, I believe, a VP at, at Tiffany and obviously a member of the Arnaud family, the you know, shareholders with, within LVMH, saying, like, I'm not allocating watches. And I think that the idea of somebody of that stature, who is such an important person to that group, kind of be saying, like, hey, guys, like, you know, like, don't ask me for help. Here. Like, I'm not <laughs> going to. Um, is, is pretty amazing. And I think like when you start talking to the Tiffany people, some of which I know, obviously, you know, it's my understanding that like, you know, these watches may not be available. Like it's not like they're gonna drop 169 watches off of the Tiffany store in New York anytime soon. I think this is gonna be probably, and again, this is not coming from anybody official, it's probably gonna be a long, slow burn on getting these watches out the door, just like it is with everything, you know? I mean, I think if, I mean, they've been making the 5711 for how many years? Like I would expect to see these continue to be delivered for a long time hmm. so that you don't see 169 of them on Instagram in the next 30 days. And uh, speaking of Arnaud, he was in the room for the the sale. He came uh, specifically just for, for lot T1. And when it hit the 5 million mark, you could see him uh, fist bumping in the the air as it passed 5 million, which I thought was kind of fun. Um, I actually didn't see that. I was in the middle of, of typing the article, our coverage that went live, but Rich, who was sitting behind me, pointed it out after the fact. And uh, it's, that's, that, that is fun energy. It, it is. And like, you know, I, I know Alex a little bit and like he is a very real watch person, you know? And I think like that as, as a watch guy is, is pretty, pretty amazing to see something, you know, company that you and your family have invested in and really, you know, really, you know, put a lot of effort towards do that well in partnership with Patek Philippe, which is, which is amazing. I think the other thing that was really amazing about that CNBC story, James, is the fact that like, you know, there's been all these rumors about LVMH and Tiffany for, I'm sorry, LVMH and Patek for so many years. Like there's really only one group out there that could probably pay the price in cash anyway to purchase a Patek Philippe. And, and that is the, you know, the, the LVMH group for sure. And the fact that he makes reference to like them being on a Zoom call and him presenting it to him as like, you know, a celebratory moment is, is kind of wild. I mean, it's not kind of wild, but it's really wild. And I think the, the idea of, of these two brands working together long-term is fascinating. And John, as you said in your introducing post, like, you know, there was a lot of questions in people's minds of if Patek would maintain the Tiffany relationship after they were sold to LVMH, you know, because as, as some of you guys may know, in every contract, when you're an authorized dealer, if there's a change of control of that authorized dealer, any brand or strong brand have the ability to pull out. You know, if it's if you're not dealing with the same kind of parties, you can say, you know what, I'm good. And we've seen that a lot, mostly with Rolex, a little bit with Patek here in the USA, where if, if a, a mom and pop door goes to somebody they don't like, they say, you know, we're not going to do that. Uh, and so there was a question of if they would continue to work with LVMH. And then we come to find out a few years later that like, actually like they're, they're, they're pretty friendly, uh, which is pretty amazing to think about. Uh, yeah. I mean, I would say very friendly, certainly based on the, um, uh, the inscription, uh, on the case back, right. The LVMH in the year 2021, I can't think of another watch from the LVMH group itself, you know, whether it's Hublot or Zenith or Tag Heuer that has that kind of marking on it. Agreed. Yeah. And at the end of the sale, there's one, one more thing I wanted to put a peg on because we, we got the report of uh, the Arno fist bump, which is a, f a fun thing. It was a huge amount of money earned for, for uh, charity and, you know, every, all the parties involved didn't take a cut in any way. Uh, but right when it sold on, after the last hammer, Arl said, um, you know, that's what watch collecting is all about. And, and I'm wondering how that lands, you know, I'm, I'm just never, you know, I don't have any personal context for watch collecting at this level. I, I, you know, I see it as a, I have to read about it or learn about it directly from Ben or people like that. And, and I'm wondering, Ben, what do you think this does signify for uh, watch collecting? If, if anything, maybe it just signifies that the 5711 is a beloved watch and, and nothing more. This result, that's, that's what you're asking about? Like this result of the watch? This result, yeah, for sure. And and, and kind of, are we, are we seeing 
is is it too simple to say that we're kind of seeing the top of the 5711 or, or of the steel protect thing obviously this is the end of the 5711 but it'll be replaced by something yeah sure i mean I, are I don't we going to see six million dollar costs for uh them in the second secondary market no we're, 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 we're nowhere near right no absolutely not i mean i, I think I was talking to a few guys over the weekend about it, some of which were involved with the bidding, some of which were not. Others, big collectors, like, there's no way. Like, this is not, you know, I saw somebody say, oh, anybody who gets this watch is being given, you know, if you pay 50 grand for it, you're being given $6 million. Like, no chance, you know? Like, this was, you get caught up in the moment and speaking to a few of the guys that were involved in the bidding, they were like, thank God I didn't win that watch. Like, that would have been a tragic mistake, you know? <laughs> and so, yeah, look, I, I think, you know, that Logan and I have briefly chatted about how kind of crazy it is that everyone's hating on it. Like, who cares? You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's just one result of one lot. And all these auctions tell you is how much somebody or really two people are willing to pay for anything on that given moment on that given day. It doesn't mean anything. Is the Nautilus going to continue to drive up a little bit because of this result? Sure. Why not? You know, but it's like, this doesn't speak to anything bigger. I don't think, I think it just speaks to the strength of, of the, these brands involved. And of course the market overall, but it doesn't, I don't know. Is this peak Nautilus? Yeah, it probably is. I mean, let's hope it doesn't get any crazier than this, but if it does, so be it. You know, like I think, all the guys that have invested so heavily in watches over the past 10 years plus are probably pretty excited to see watches this this you know being in being in the newspaper being on bloomberg and and business insider for for uh, you know a lot like this and yeah. again the thing that has to be said is this money went to charity if this lot was not for charity there's no way it would have come close to this especially now that we know that right. it likely went to a new yorker or an american that person can write that amount off and that is a real advantage Absolutely, and and to fill in the blank because I saw this a bunch in the in the comments on the the first post that John wrote for the site. The Nature Conservancy is a U.S. based accredited land trust. They score an eighty five point three two on Charity Navigator. They're considered a good place to invest money. Mm -hmm. They were founded in nineteen fifty one. They now work in seventy nine countries and have protected something like one hundred and nineteen million acres. Certainly more than I've managed to do. Um, I'm going to include a so link. Far. Yeah, yeah. Give me some time. Yeah, I'll partner up with Yvonne Chouinard at some point. I'll, uh, I'll I'll include a link to their Wikipedia page into the Charity Navigator thing. You know, I saw people saying like, "Oh, is the Nature Conservancy owned by LVMH? Is it this circular thing?" And I was like, "No, it's literally just like a functioning charity that seems to be doing like relatively solid work." They had um, they had some uh, leadership issues in 2019 that they seem to have weathered uh, by you know putting in proper CEOs and uh, including. Uh, for a while, the company was, or the the group was run by the, your the former U.S. Secretary of the Interior. They're not messing around. So, I mean, yeah. they deal in billions of dollars. So it's not like this is going to have a huge effect on their book. But they're going to spend that that money doing something cool to help uh, land and waterways throughout the world. So I, I think that's worth considering. It doesn't have to be ten minutes talking about what it is to be a, a you know a charitable organization. But people were asking, and I think it was a fair question because it is a lot of money and. You know, we see a lot of auctions that are for charity. You know, only watch comes to mind, and in this case, they yeah. operated this like a normal sale with buyers' premiums and the rest, and all of it went to um, went to this charity, which I think really changes the way I I feel about this watch. Com completely, and I think that that's a really strong point, James. And I think also like th this nonsense of like money laundering and blah blah blah. Like, if there's one thing that you want to do to like get the attention of the IRS. Spend $6 million on a watch. You know what I mean? Like, that is not a right way to, to, to launder money for sure. And then be, beyond that, I mean, the, the anti-money laundering situation with auction houses is so robust. And as anybody who has ever bid, at Phillips in particular, any auction house knows, if you're bidding under a company, or LLC, Inc., shell company, whatever, you then have to validate to Phillips 
who are the shareholders of that company? Like, it is not like this idea that like these all all these rich guys are like laundering money through watch auctions and art auctions. Like, has it happened for sure? Is it happening here anymore? Definitely not. You know, it's just not. And I think it, it's so easy to assume. I mean, the, the first kind of trope in this space is that, oh, anybody that spends more money than me on a watch is just going to put it in the safe and never going to wear. And then once you get past that, maybe you can afford, say, a $100,000 watch. You then say, oh, anybody that's spending a million dollars on a watch is just laundering money. It's like you're just going to continue to, to slide the scale and assume the worst to the people that are able to, to, to kind of afford more than you. And it's just not reality. And I, I think I think that's it. Like the Stearns, like Patek was not bidding on this watch. I don't think Tiffany was bidding on this watch. I think this was just somebody out there in New York that really wanted to spend, they, they wanted the watch and they were okay making a huge donation. Uh, so yeah, I just wanted to hop in here with a, kind of a few notes. Uh, I have an ask out to the Nature Conservancy to follow up uh, and do kind of a report on exactly how they plan to spend the money that they uh, earned from Phillips. So, you know, we'll, we we will be going Fabulous. deeper in in you know, instead of just reporting the total, we want to kind of find out how the Phillips, Paddock, uh, you know, LVMH, Nature Conservancy relationship started, where it's going, uh, and why that uh, charity itself was chosen. And Ben, just to kind of follow up on what you were saying, uh, I, I mean, these auction houses, they they will literally, like, they need to know where the money is coming from. It's not a simple way to launder money. Like, it, that is just not how laundering money works. Um, and I, I wish more people understood that, that like the auction houses, yes, they do their due diligence. They're not just trying to, you know, be a front, you know, that's, it's not a criminal organization y'all like they're, I mean, I can't say a hundred percent everything everywhere, but you know, for the, everything that I've been around, it's, it's handled incredibly, incredibly above board. Um, and then also uh, RL's quote that kind of, you know, caused a, a, a bit of a stir with uh, this is what watch collecting is all about. I, I was able to catch up with him on Sunday after the auction. And I uh, we talked a bit about that. And um, he was specifically talking about, you know, the fact that after so long, we're finally able to have an in-person auction and that there's two people bidding in the room, passionate collectors bidding, and all the money is going to charity and that there is so much interest. That's what watch collecting is all about. It's about the passion. It's about doing good. It's about bringing people together. And uh, that's something that we really haven't had much of a chance to do, especially here in uh, New York. I mean, this was the first um, Phillips live watch auction in New York in two years. Um, and that, that is really special. And, um, that, that is what he meant by that. He wasn't trying to, to make a statement about how, you know, he's trying to make all your watches too expensive for you to collect. Like it, it, it's, that's not what collecting's about. That's not what he's, that he, he is a passionate collector himself and that's not what he wants. He, he cares about watches at the end of the day. And that's what collecting is about. The for, for watches for the better of, uh, everyone watches for the better of, of, you know, society. And I think that's some great context to add for sure. Um, I, I would like to move on to where I th where we think that the general effect on watch enthusiasm, culture, collecting. And, and I think the other thing that we've seen a lot in the comments, you know, there's there's two kind of overriding positions like that, that this was this was great because it was, uh, uh, you know, an, an interesting watch being sold for charity. And the other side being this more negative view of it saying that this this reflects kind of the worst side of the watch industry, which I don't really buy either in a vacuum, like on its own. Where I am interested is this is this idea of what does this do not only to the 5711 market, but just to the idea of the secondary market for hard to get watches? Because that's where, you know, there'll be 170 people. I assume they're not going to want people flipping these. That's going to be an issue. 
<laughs> yes, right. I, I, I would, if anybody had trusted us on this watch, like they've got some, some balls of steel. Yeah, sure. this is a this is you know back in the day. This is a I, I mean this is a hundred x what it would be like to get a GT three allocation and then have them yes. have Porsche find out you sold it before you ever took delivery. Like yeah, or GT forty yeah yeah there or yeah yeah it's an interesting thing. But Ben, where do you think this lands? Does this do you think this is so big and so so much in its own vector that it's not gonna cascade into other things or are dealers going to get their hands on these and it's going to be a whole new kind of generation of that gap between say an msrp or even an adjusted price and then the street price yeah i mean there's two things i should say there first of which like let's assume the guy who bought this watch is named peter james and let's say you met him at a hoodinky meetup or whatever and he didn't have a watch on at all in fact, let's say he didn't even buy the watch. And I just said, hey, James, this is my friend, Peter. Uh, you know, he's a philanthropist. He just donated $6.5 million to the Nature Conservancy. How would you, how would you view that guy? You'd be like, wow, like that, that's, that's incredible. That, that's so generous, like a man of means, like giving that much money back to something that, that is really great. I, I would imagine you say like, that's probably a pretty cool guy. Would you not? I would. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So like, imagine that person just did it. And in exchange, he got a watch that he really wants. Like, like it's just that simple. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't need to be any more complex than that. And then in terms of like, you know, flipping and, and all that stuff, like I was chatting with some guys over the weekend, like we all kind of came to the conclusion that like these watches on the open market will be worth around a million dollars when they start doing right? And which is bananas. I mean, that is completely insane. No question about it. That is, well, let's say it's $50,000. So that's 20X. Mm-hmm. So yeah, 20X retail, like no matter who you are, if you're a decamillionaire or a billionaire, if somebody says you can put 50 into this thing and you're going to get uh, a million out of it, like that's a compelling offer, you know, like that is just quick instant return. So there will be people that do that for sure. Uh, and I, you know, I've got a friend who kind of helps allocate Richard meals, et cetera. And again, no matter who you are, if you can make hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, like you're going to pay attention for sure. But I just don't think that people that have that relationship with Tiffany are going to be in that boat. Like it's just not that way that the Tiffany clan is different than, than other authorized dealers in some ways than that. Like it's a very particular type of client that buys from them. You know, these people, you have their cell phone numbers. Like some cases you go to dinner with them. It's like, look, if people want to burn the bridge forever, or just like, let's say they run out of money or their parents sick or child sick, whatever, you just need the money. Sure. And I think people would understand that, but I, I just don't see people buying this watch to flip it. Even at that incredible ROI. Yeah. And I mean, if you, it's funny to think that it's, it's a, you know, twenty uh, x because if they sold all of them at list, we're talking about about nine million dollars, a little less than nine million dollars, I guess. And like, it, it's cra- it's crazy to think that in many ways, it's the 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 theoretical street price for the whole collection is more like one hundred and seventy million dollars, one hundred and seventy five million dollars, something like that. And who knows? Yeah. Who do, like this is this is more we're entering more just the fun speculative. This is what we would do, of course. You know, in the evening at a, if we were able to hang out together and chit chat about this watch. And I, I love learning about this stuff in the perspective that. I don't have and haven't yet learned, you know, from my own my own trajectory through the watch world. But I, I think in many ways the the rise in attention is being ignored by the folks that that want to focus on the fact that it was a a very expensive watch that already had kind of um its own sort of infamy for being difficult to buy. And and I think it's worth considering the fact that as certainly let's let's say the four of us here on this call, we work in the watch industry. A fifty thousand dollar watch selling for six and a half million dollars for charity and like ben said getting in newspapers and something that people will be talking about in other auction stories for the next several years that's great for us i think it's pretty good for patek too you know these guys heard me you know lash out against this watch a little bit at the retreat just because i didn't fully understand it yet and then i 
I took some time. I listened to them, and and I've I've kind of turned around, especially on this one at auction. I think this is a really impressive thing that that is. If we're going to do all these limited editions, this endless world of limited, it happens in the car world too. They keep saying that there's not going to be another Pagani Zonda, but if you've got, if you've got four million dollars, they'll make you a Zonda with your own initials on it. And and it's a wild thing to see if this is how we might start to approach really kind of high buzz LEs. Yeah. Yeah. And th- there are other watches that, that trade for 10X. There are other watches that, that trade for, for many X. Like, again, I think this result, this is a charity result. And charity results have to be viewed separately than, than non-charity results. Like, it just is. If, if this were just some some guy, you know, or even Tiffany or LVMH or whoever, like, just allocated the first watch to the sale and it went, like, just to, to for fun and games, I would have some some negativity and a little, some you know, some bitterness towards it for sure. This was a charity result. It's just like it's just a different thing, and it's it's viewed that way by every collector I know, from John Goldberger to RL to everybody. It's just different. This is a donation, and the person got a watch to 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 remind them of it. Like simple as that. Yeah, and I I mean it's it's it is different. It, it, it's something like it doesn't affect the any of us really. I mean it's 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 just kind of an event that happened. It's a single watch that that sold. You know, whenever are we going to hear about that watch again? Probably not. Um, maybe we will, but it just, I don't think it matters that much in the scheme of things. What, what bothers okay. me, and, and so many people were just like wringing their hands and on social media, on Instagram, in the Hodinkee comments section. And it's just like, come on, y'all. Like, it's, this is, this is fun. This is fluff. Like, this is, like, this is just fun and games. Uh, what, what, if, if you want to get into like the, the spirit of collecting and, and get negative, I mean, like, the, there, there was a Hulk that went for $95,000. Like, that's, that, let's talk, let's that's, talk about that. That's yeah. weird. That is dumb. Yeah. That's a watch that was, that was produced crazy. for a decade. <laughs> like that's yeah. that's weird, y'all. Like that's much that that makes me feel a lot more uncomfortable than this single Tiffany blue. 100%. Yeah. Dude, that, that that offends me so much more because it's just like that like that is really impacting <laughs> people that like are, are in the trenches of watch collecting. And as you said, there's so many of them out. They're made for so long and it's like kind of core like look, Patek is not normal. You know what I mean? Like I know we talk about Patek like this is like okay, like it's just like a whatever watch. Like Patek is the highest. I mean, you know, removing the Cari Vultilander Philippe Dufour or Crivia type stuff like Patek is the absolute pinnacle of 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 watch collecting. You know, and I, I think we tend to normalize how much this stuff costs and how special this stuff is, but a Patek is and should be treated as something very special. A Rolex is something else entirely. And so that that is why the, the Hulk result to me was, you know, a lot crazier and says a lot worse things about the community than uh, than than the charity lot. And the same with like some of the what we've seen with, you know, a few of these micro brands that have popped up in the past five years, like the Corona Tokyo stuff that's being flipped immediately for 5X and going for $10,000 like that. That feels weird to me. That's a Miyota movement like that. That's not right. Like Furlan Mari, you know, that's it's a nice looking watch, but it's a it's a Mecca Quartz movement and they're they're being traded for like 4K like that's weird. Like we, we should be honest and like, look at the, those things with kind of uh we should roll our eyes at that. Like this one-off charity thing is, is just, it's whatever, you know, I mean, it's great. It's great. It's a thing we're going to talk about and then we'll, we'll all move on to the, the next big story. All right. So then I think the only place left to go is to look forward. And obviously if this is the end of the 5711, the rumor mill has already started with the idea of a 6711. And for those of you who haven't read it, I've dug around the rumors. wasn't the most comfortable trip through the internet. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of sites I'd never heard of that are covering 
uh, the possibility of a of a Patek. Uh, they're saying it's going to be a titanium with a blue dial and platinum with a gray dial up to 41 millimeters. And then there's this weird thing where they're going to be using the 324S movement, which is a Calatrava movement seen in stuff like the 5222A. Is this just, are, are we too early in the span? And I'll just trim this out of the show. I'm always curious about some rumor stuff, especially when it's a, a watch that people clearly feel really strongly about. I, I don't know if we're too early because we can see a new Nautilus tomorrow, as far as we know, you know, but I, I just think anybody that has That's any true. idea yeah. is just blown smoke out their ass. You know, like nobody knows. Like, here's the thing. If I don't know, you don't know. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, it's just, just not going to happen. And I think, look, titanium makes sense. I, I said this somewhere, I forget where recently but yeah titanium makes sense because you know there was that whole titanium collection and Claude Spear has them and like but tech pays attention to stuff that they know like what collectors love um, and so I, I could see that um, will it get bigger maybe uh, I mean who who knows I mean you know I, I could I could come up with yeah. an idea that would be pretty neat but like is that what they're planning who, who knows and I think anybody on the internet that claims to have insight into that I think is, is just just lying <laughs> Just go like could take in for a click or something otherwise. Yeah, it is a lot easier click. with a brand like them for to wait until they send you the press release. Well, yeah. I mean it's <laughs> it's like the, the thing that, that I've always like I've always kind of like laughed at are, are my friends at, at Monochrome who every year do like Rolex predictions. Mm-hmm. You know, that they, they do like this is what Rolex could do this year. And then like, you know, 25 people go on to Instagram and tags and say, Did you see what Rolex is doing? And it's like that's not that's not what they're doing. This is what one group of people think they might do. And it's like that that to me feels like you know, a, a little silly at times, for sure. I, I like that over the years, they've changed how clear they are that it's a prediction. It's now like, you know, header type one, largest font possible. Like, yeah. they're just having a nice time and getting excited for like a great event in the watch world. Yeah. But people definitely took some of it super literally. I was gonna say, I, I gave up predicting Rolex when they dropped that uh, Platinum Daytona with the blue yeah. dial years back. Don't, I was like, no, this is... I, I don't have the ability. I don't, I'm not seeing the math. I don't, I'm not having that like Zach Galifianakis moment where, yeah. where all the numbers are swirling around and, and I come up with the correct guess. Well, it's just like, why, why play that game, first of all? And I think like the, the, the best kind of memory that I have of, of anything like that is is a, an ex-colleague of ours, a friend of ours named Mo. Uh, his son designed like a, a Sprite, the, the Rolex <laughs> Sprite, which was just yeah. like something he, like his, his like, you know, kind of young son, I think like sub 10 years old son. Who's eight. Just yeah, drew yeah. up one day, yeah. And, and we put it on the site because it was super cute and it was super charming. And like people to this day, like, yo, dude, like, what's the deal with the Sprite? When's the Sprite coming out? And I'm just I like, it a lot. I don't think it is. I don't think it is. Like, I just don't think it is, you know? And that's why, like, it, it's so silly to play these kind of like, what if games. You're only going to end up disappointed. <laughs> I was just going to say, is it worth asking ourselves what we might want from an, the next Nautilus, though? Like, how could the Nautilus be improved in our opinion? What would you, what would you want, John? I don't I mean, I, I guess the, the bracelet is a little bit controversial. Mm-hmm. The, the clasp, that could probably something a little bit more modern could be Interesting. potentially considered. Yeah, I mean, we've seen micro-adjust on the lady-sized Nautilus, I believe. So it'd be interesting to see if that came uh, to the new one. Uh, conceivably, that would make some sense. That would make some sense. A new new movement, I think, would be a great <laughs> update. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with both of you guys there, for sure. I think, like, new, you know, micro-adjust class, thinner, just a little bit thinner. I mean, I think that, you know, the Royal Oak, the 15202 is just so wonderful in its, in its uh, depth. Um, the Nautilus is not thick by any means, but to make it thinner. And I think also like going back to what made the tech so special and really all watchmakers of, of that ilk in the 50s was ultra thin watchmaking. We've seen Bulgari do such a great job with it. Like imagine a Bulgari thin movement, but finish like a Patek. Uh, I think, and they've got the ability to do micro rotors mm. so well, as, as we all know. I think that could be really neat. 
Um, but you know, if you know, if you're out there, Terry, that's that's what I would like to see. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's as good a spot to end as any. I want to make sure you guys can get on with your uh, your evening and get some dinner in you and the rest. Uh, look, guys, this this has been a treat. Some of it's just shooting into the breeze, just trying to feel out the world. And, and it's a crazy time when we're seeing watches and like this come out and the auctions like this come out. But it's been obviously a big story and something that I'm, I'm really glad to have uh, all three of your perspectives on. So thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, James. Thank you, James. All right. Well, like I always like to say, if you're enjoying the show, please tell a friend. That's all I can ask for. It makes a huge difference. Send the link. Uh, let them know you're liking it, and maybe they can give it a listen. Let us know in the comments if there's something you think we missed, something more you want to chat about, something to include in the next episode. We've got one more episode for this calendar year, and then we're kicking off next year around January 10th with a, a really special surprise guest that I'm uh, pretty pumped for. And until then, we'll chat to you in about a week's time. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>